We are in Yavamos Nenvav Amir Aleph 56A3 in the Art Scroll Gemara. The Gemara now gives a second version to the dispute between Rav and Shmuel. The first version we discussed in the last recording. And essentially they had a dispute about what happens in a scenario where uh, it's, not, it's viewed as a lower level Yibum. Uh, you do Yibum in a way where it is not the ideal way of doing Yibum, as we discussed in the Mishnah, it says uh, that you don't realize that it's your sister-in-law, or you didn't realize that you are doing yibum itself, that you're fulfilling the mitzvah of yibum, or you are being forced into it. These are all different scenarios where it's certainly not in its an ideal form. And as a result, if it's in its ideal form, so then everybody agrees that once you do yibum, you are fully married with regards to all the different halachic ramifications of marriage. But if it's not in its an, if it is not in its ideal form, so we had the first version, which essentially said that everybody is in agreement that if the yibum is taking place after the the, the first couple, meaning the, the deceased brother and his wife, they were fully married. So everybody agrees that that just continues. That there is there you're fully married even if you do it in its weaker form. However, there's a dispute if uh, it's a continuation of an engagement. They weren't halachically married, they were only halachically engaged. So Rav is of the opinion that it doesn't make a difference, they're still fully married. And Shmuel is of the opinion that no, whatever happened during that time of engagement, it's just a continuation of that. Because it's in its weaker form of Yibam, whatever existed within the first relationship, within that first engagement, so then that will also continue. But anything which does not exist uh, will not continue. And therefore Shmuel was of the opinion uh, that she wouldn't be allowed to eat truma if, let's say, uh, she was married to a Kohen, or there wouldn't be an obligation to uh, be involved in the burial, and uh, he wouldn't, the husband would not be able to annul her vows. Uh, there would be various ramifications because it wouldn't be viewed as though they are fully married with regards to all of the different halachic ramifications. That was all within the first version. The Gemara now has a second version, a different version. And it says as follows, There are those who have a different version. When it comes to, if it would be uh, the uh, continuation of an engagement, let's say the deceased husband was originally engaged, only engaged to his wife, and they were never married, halachically married. So in this version, everybody agrees that when they do Yibam in its weaker form, if they're forced into it, they don't realize that it's the sister-in-law, other examples. So then, it's just a continuation of the first marriage that everybody agrees to, and so therefore, of the first engagement, really, not first marriage, the first engagement, and so therefore, uh, she would not be allowed to eat truma, let's say, if she's married to a Kohen, the special food that is designated for the tribe of the Kohen. Their entire dispute is Mina'eris, and specifically in the context of where it's the, it's the continuation of an actual halachic marriage. If it's an actual halachic marriage, so then what's the case then? And then this is interesting. Rav Amar Achalas Dahavis Achlamei Kara Ushmol Amar Eino Achalas Ki Rav Yerachman Abiyash Hoki Kimei Zed Adram Amar Parsha Avalachol Midilo Rav is of the opinion that since the original relationship was a marriage, so then it continues, that whatever was in the previous relationship continues to exist, and therefore she would be allowed to eat truma, the special food that's given to a Kohen, uh, because when she's marrying a Kohen, and all the other ramifications of annulling vows 
and obligation to bury you. All these uh, would apply. Shmuel, on the other hand, is a very interesting opinion. He says, no, never. Anytime it's a weak, that it's a weaker form of a marriage, of a yibum, sorry. So even if it's, uh, the original relationship was a marriage, it was a halakhically valid marriage, it doesn't make a difference. Anytime you have a weaker form of yibum, it will never lead, according to Shmuel, it will never lead to a full marriage. It will never lead to a full marriage. All it will have is the aspects of yibum, meaning the brother-in-law inherits the estate of his brother, and that you fulfill the mitzvah of yibum, so the co-wife could go marry whoever she wants. But it will never have the full degree of a marriage, whenever you do yibum in its weaker form. So the Gemara has a few questions on this. Oh, Vahamar of Nathan or Shmuel, but doesn't Shmuel say, Kol Shabbat Machel Yavah Machel? Shmuel says, this originally in the first version, this was a support to Shmuel. But now it's a question on Shmuel. Shmuel himself said, anytime the husband is in a situation where his wife can now eat Shuma, i.e. they are uh, married, halachically married, so then the Yavam also could uh, allow his wife to eat. If the Yavam is also a Kohen, she would also be allowed to eat Shuma, the food which is designated for the Kohen. So that seems to imply that if they were fully married, and then even if it's a scenario where it's a weaker form of Yibam, that the Yavam, the brother-in-law, uh, would allow her to, would, would give her the ability to eat truma. So that seems to be a question, because according to Shmuel now, she, if it's a weaker form of Yibam, she should never have truma. So the Gemara answers, no, Ema, kol biya shaba machaba, yavam machaba, v'chol biya she'ena ba machaba, ena yavam machaba. So the simple explanation to this is that any time that the husband uh, does has uh, has uh, sexual relations, which will ultimately lead to a marriage. So let's say the simple explanation is that this is the engagement, which will eventually lead to a marriage. One of the ways of getting engaged is by doing uh, having bia, by having sexual relations. That's one of the ways of getting engaged uh, from the Torah's perspective. From a rabbinic perspective, we said that one shouldn't do this; it's inappropriate. Uh, but at least on a biblical level. That would work, and that requires everyone being aware of what's going on, not being forced, a normal form of an engagement through sexual relations. So if that is what it's done, so that same process would be a, would work for the Yavam, for the brother-in-law who's doing Yibam, only if it's under the same conditions, i.e. willingly understanding what you're doing, not being forced. But if it's a situation where it wouldn't even work, let's say, for Kiddushin, for an engagement, so then with regards to Yibam, also it will not work. She will not be able to eat Truma if she, it's a case where they're being forced. If it's a case where they don't even realize they're doing Yibam, so then it's true. You might fulfill the mitzvah of Yibam. You might fulfill and uh, the co-wife will be exempt and the brother-in-law will inherit from the brother's estate, but in the end of the day, it will not have the full-fledged marriage, according to Shmuel. So that's how we answer that question. The Gemara now has a final challenge on Shmuel, again, from the same Brisa, from the same source that we quoted in the last recording, and the Gemara is going to analyze this Brisa also later on. Essentially, uh, the rule is that if they were uh, perfectly normal at the time of engagement, so the engagement was a halachic engagement, However, they weren't able to get married, to have the halachic marriage until, uh, but before they became married, he, the husband, became deaf-mute. So the marriage itself is viewed as a good, valid marriage, 
even though we say that he does, for regards to other aspects of halacha, that he doesn't is not viewed as having enough knowledge, enough awareness. So, for example, he's not allowed to get engaged, but he could get married, and so he could get married. However, even though they're married, she does not eat truma. Why doesn't she eat truma? She does not eat truma uh, because we are concerned that people will get confused and say, you know what? If they got engaged while he was deaf mute, she could also eat truma, which is not true because it wouldn't be viewed as a halakhic engagement. If it's somebody who's deaf mute, halakhically speaking, they cannot get engaged. It's only if they, they were already engaged before he became a deaf mute, so then the marriage could take place. So because people might get confused and say, you know what, uh, any we see that this deaf mute person is uh, allowing, in this scenario, the wife is allowed to have truma, people will think, oh, this is even true if uh, they got engaged when he was in a state of being deaf. Uh, but that's not true. So therefore, out of that concern, we'll say, you know what? She can never eat truma. She would not be allowed to eat truma. The, the Brisa goes on. It says, However, if, let's say, he died, let's say the uh, the uh, the husband passes away and he falls to, she falls to a yavam, to a brother-in-law who's deaf-mute. So we say, oh, she could eat and for and in this scenario, the Yavam has a greater impact, the brother-in-law has a greater impact through Dim Yavam than the husband. And so this is a question. This at this stage, this is a question both on Rav and on Shmuel. Because according to Rav, Rav is of the opinion that if the original relationship was an engagement, so then once the Yavam does Yavam, they can't eat truma, because since when they were engaged, they couldn't eat truma, so so to now, when it's a weaker form of a yibam, they can't eat truma. Why is this a weaker form of a yibam? Because a cher, somebody who's deaf-mute, we assume from a halakhic perspective that they are not aware of what they are accomplishing here. And so therefore, it's a weaker form of yibam, and yet this Bryce is saying that if he passes away, uh, if he does pass away, so then, and seemingly it's from the engagement, that she could eat truma. Why is that allowed? So the Gemara says, I understand the coin to Rav, you could explain based on what we said in, in the previous recording, the way we're explaining it for Shmuel in the first version, which is essentially Rav in this version, essentially what we're going to say is that the case is where he passed away, the deceased husband passed away after their marriage. That's what you have to say. And so then certainly she's allowed to eat truma because after the marriage, a halachic marriage, she would be allowed to eat truma after she does yibam. But however, the whole question on Shmuel remains a question because Shmuel is of the opinion that she could never eat truma. Even if the first relationship was a marriage, a halachic marriage, she could not eat truma no matter what. And here the Bryce is saying that she's allowed to eat truma if it's a weaker form of, an, uh, of a yibam. So how is that possible? So the Gemara says, Kasha, this is really a strong question on this version of Shmuel. And the Gemara leaves it unanswered. We have a difficult time, according to this Bryce, uh, within Shmuel. Okay, the Gemara now, for the next few lines, discusses the brysa that we just we just mentioned, and it's going to analyze this brysa. But just as a brief introduction, uh, there's a few points that should be mentioned. Number one is that from, and we mentioned this in the last recording as well, from the Torah's perspective, if a woman who is a Yisrael, let's say she's not from the tribe of the Kahuna, of Kohanim, she marries a Kohen, so first of all, from a biblical perspective, even once she gets engaged, she's allowed to eat truma. Through engagement alone, they are halakhically engaged. She's now allowed to eat truma because she's engaged to a Kohen. And so 
she now is allowed to eat truma. Uh, however, on a rabbinic level, we said, you know what, you can't eat truma because since at the time of engagement they're living in two separate homes and it's going to get confusing because she's living with her parents. Her parents are not allowed to eat truma. She's allowed to eat truma. Things are going to get mixed up, mixed around, um, and, and people will get confused. And so therefore we said, you know what, don't eat truma until you're actually living with your husband, i.e. after the marriage. That's on a rabbinic level. That's point number one. Point number two is also the point that we mentioned before, which is essentially someone who is a deaf mute, they cannot get engaged. They can't get engaged. You need a higher level of awareness. However, once you're engaged, let's say they were they were not deaf at the time of the engagement, they became deaf during the course of the engagement, for them to get married, they are allowed uh, to get married. It would be permissible for them to get married. Now, there's a question, as we will see in the Gemara, uh, are they able to then... Uh, once they are married, can the wife eat truma? Now, from a biblical perspective, certainly she's allowed to eat truma. They're fully married. Certainly she would be allowed to eat truma. The whole question is on a rabbinic level, did they say that, you know what, don't eat truma? Why would they say not to eat truma? So they would say not to eat truma because, as we mentioned before, people will get confused and say that there's no difference whether they got married when he was a deaf mute or whether they're, get, whether, uh, they're engaged when he's a deaf mute. It doesn't make a difference, and she would always be allowed to eat truma, which is incorrect, because if he's a deaf mute at the time of the engagement, it's not viewed as a halachic engagement. It wouldn't be halachically acceptable. And so because of this concern that people might not be able to understand the difference, they won't know the difference out of that concern, there are those, not everybody, that there are those that say, you know what, she should not eat truma. Don't have her eat truma because people will get confused. Okay, that are the two. Those are the two introductory points. So says the Brisa. Tanur Rabbanan. And quotes the Brisa. Let's say everybody is is fine and and uh, competent. So the engagement is a good engagement. Now then he becomes a deaf mute and then they get married. It's viewed as a halachically acceptable marriage. However, according to this opinion, she does not eat truma. As we explained, the reason why she does not eat truma is because we're afraid that people will get confused and say if that he was a deaf mute at the time of the engagement, she could also eat truma once they get married. However, the engagement is not a halakhically acceptable engagement because, as we pointed out, once he's a deaf mute at the time of engagement, it's not, doesn't work. It's only for the marriage, which is just the conclusion, the final part, that it works. The Brisa continues, and this is new. la ben, let's say they're married. So, as of now, she's not eating truma. Uh, but once they're married and they have a child, they then have a child, Ochelas, she is allowed to eat truma because we say that once they have a child, so then even if uh, the husband were to pass away, she would be allowed to eat truma once she has a child because she's not eating truma as a result of the marriage. She's eating truma as a, as a result of her child. If she has a boy, so that, that son is a Kohen and by extension, the mother is allowed to eat truma even if in general, let's say they didn't have children, so then once her husband passes away, so then she's no longer able to have truma. But because she has a son, so now she's able to eat truma by extension of the fact that her son is able to have truma. So it's not from the marriage, it's really because her offspring, her children are allowed to have truma. However, Mesa Ben, let's say if she had a baby, she had a child, and then subsequently she, the, the child dies, Rav Nassan Omer Ochelas, Rav Nassan now says she is allowed to continue eating truma even though the child passes away. But the Chachamim, the majority, they say, you know what? She's not allowed to have truma. So the big question is, my time is Reb Nassim. Why would you say, according to Reb Nassim, that uh, she is allowed to eat truma? Why would, why would you say that? So 
I mean, they're they're married right now, so why would you say that you're allowed to eat uh, tshuva? Just to further the question, as we'll see in the Gemara, let's say we have a normal case where everyone, we're not dealing with a deaf mute, but you have a, a, a woman who's not a Kohen, who doesn't come from the, the Kuhuna, she marries a Kohen. Uh, and now they have a child. And now, after they have a child, the, her husband passes away. So she's allowed to continue eating truma because by extension of her uh, son. Now, if the son passes away, she's no longer able to eat truma. She's not allowed to eat truma. It's only as long as she has children from that marriage because the children are having are, are eating truma, the special food that's designated for the Kohen. So she's also allowed to. But once the child passes away, so then she's not allowed to. So what would be the difference here? In this case, they're still married. Happens to be they're still married. She's still married to the Kohen. Uh, however, we pointed out at the beginning of the price of the fact that she's married to the Kohen. The Kohen is a deaf mute, so that does not allow her to eat truma in this particular case because her husband is a deaf mute. And so we're concerned, uh, as we mentioned before. Uh, so she is allowed to eat truma once she has a child. Now that the child passes away, so then why is she allowed to eat according to Reb Nassan? So Amar Rabbah, the Gemara is going to give two suggestions. It will reject the first suggestion. Amar Rabbah, whole shikvar achla. Rabbah says that since she was already eating truma, so we allowed her to continue eating, meaning once she had the child, she now was allowed to eat truma. So even though the child passes away, since she started eating truma, she's allowed to continue eating truma. So the Gemara objects and says, what are you talking about? We don't find that to be the case always. Amar le Abaye, Abaye says to Rabbah, Elamiyata, according to this, if this is the case in a normal marriage between in a regular case of a woman who's not part of the kuhuna and she marries a Kohen according to this the halacha should be that once let's say they don't have children but once she's allowed to eat truma once her husband passes away she should be able to continue eating truma because since she was eating truma at a certain point in time when they were i.e. when they were married she should be allowed to eat truma even after her husband passes away but that is not the halacha that is not the law so rather what do we say once the husband passes away so she loses that connection to the kuhuna so, so too once her child passes away so then she should also lose her connection to the kahuna with regards to eating truma. She should not be allowed to eat truma. So rather the Gemara says, you know what, this is the answer. Ella Omar of Yosef. Rav Yosef says, Rav Yosef says, you know what, Rav Nassan really argues on the whole premise. Uh, the whole understanding was that once they get married, she's not allowed to eat truma. Out of this concern, right? This concern that, you know, people will think that because she's married to somebody who's deaf-mute, even if they got engaged, uh, so then maybe she'll be able to eat truma once they get married. But the truth is that that's not the case because it wouldn't be viewed as a halakhically acceptable engagement because at the time of the engagement, he was a deaf-mute. Uh, and so there's this concern. So therefore, we say don't eat truma. Rav Nasan argues on that whole premise and says, you know what? I argue on everything and really she could eat truma. Once they're married, she could eat truma, which is why... That if they have a child and the child passes away, she could continue eating truma because they're still married. So that's why she could eat truma. He argues on everything. He argues on this whole on this whole assumption. The chachamim, the majority, argue, but he he and, and hold that she can't eat truma even after they're married. But Amar Abaye, Abaye says to Rav Yosef, ben So if this is the case, Rav Nassan argues on everything. So why does it, why does the Brisa have it that Rav Nassan is only arguing? Uh, with regards to the child being born and then the child dying, he should be arguing on everything. So the Gemara answers, Mishum Rabbanan, that the reason is 
is because the birth was mentioned for the Rabbanon, for the majority who argue, they say, no, if they have a child, so then now she could eat truma. So that's why you mentioned the child. But the Gemara continues to ask, so why doesn't Reb Nassim say explicitly that he argues on everything, even on the first half of the fact that just them being married, Reb Nassim would hold that she's allowed to eat truma. So the Gemara gives a very interesting answer, because Reb Nassim he, he, he wanted, as if this is how they wrote it in the Brisa, he wanted the rabbis to continue finishing before he expresses his own opinion. And we'll get back to that in a second. But the Gemara then says, If this is true, the way the Brisa writes it down is that Reb Nassan is interjects. And he's mentioned before the conclusion of the majority. And if this is really true, that he's just letting the majority position state their opinion, so then he shouldn't interject. He should wait completely, and he should be the last opinion. So the Gemara says, Kasha, that is, that, so then that's a, that's a question. That really is a question. If the whole reason why Rav Nassim doesn't argue in the beginning is because he just wants the Chachamim, the majority, to express their position uh, first, and then he'll express his position, so then it's really a problem, because that's not exactly what's going on. He, Rav Nassim, interjects in the middle. But in the end of the day, that is what the Gemara wanted to suggest, and this is an idea that's found elsewhere. We find this in different places, that a Talmud Chacham, a true Torah scholar, is a student. It's a, is a student who wants to hear the other position first before they present their own position, which is, uh, in general, uh, a very good rule in life. And this is what Rav Nassan, the Gemara is suggesting what Rav Nassan did, that they wanted to, he wanted to understand the first position first before presenting his own. Okay, that concludes this part of the Gemara, and we'll discuss a new topic in the next recording.